is an audio platform created to educate, inform, and empower women to take charge of their physical and mental health. Join Shalana Battle and her occasional guests as they discuss many issues and health topics that concern women. While many health tips and advice will be discussed on this platform by licensed professionals, it should not take the place of seeking help from your own physician or therapist. If you feel that you need professional advice or medical assistance, do not hesitate to contact your provider. Now, let's get to the show. Hey sis, and welcome to the eavesdrop. I am Dr. Shalana Battle. Thank you so much for tuning in. Can you believe this is the first episode of season three and it's the 22nd episode? How about that? (laughs) When I say you can achieve anything if you really put your mind to it, I really didn't think I would stay the course with this one because it takes a lot of work to keep a podcast going. A lot of dedication, a lot really goes into doing this. And I really didn't think I would stay the course, but one thing that has kept me going is when women reach out to me and say that they learned something new from the podcast or the podcast motivated them to make healthy lifestyle changes. This is really what drives me because it's one of the reasons I started the show in the first place. And I saw a quote the other day that really inspired me. And the quote said, the secret to long-term success is taking small steps every day. And it made me think about how I was initially feeling about the podcast and the fact that I'm not where I envisioned myself to be at this point, but it's really not about how fast things happen for you when you are fulfilling your purpose, but it's really about your purpose fulfilling you and how it blesses others. If you have started a business or an organization and it hasn't been moving in the direction you wish for it to go, keep taking small steps. Stay the course. When you are faithful over just a few things, God will eventually make you ruler over many. So your day is coming, sis. Keep pushing. To kick off season three, I have invited the co-host from The Wind Down and Dr. Katina Brown Burgess to take part in a Q&A session. I know that as women, we have so many questions to ask our providers, but for whatever reason, our questions just don't get asked. Maybe it's because of time constraints or sometimes the questions are too embarrassing to ask. So here on the eavesdrop, we will be asking and answering common questions and concerns that you might have. Are you ready? Here's the conversation. Welcome to another episode of The Eavesdrop. Today, we have a few special guests with us to celebrate the first episode of season three. Yay! (laughs) We have the lovely co-host of The Wind Down with The Eavesdrop segment, Caroline, Nalita, and Alexis. And if you don't know who these three lovely ladies are, make sure you go back and listen to some of The Wind Down episodes. I am sure you will not be disappointed. And we are also welcoming back Dr. Katina Brown Burgess, who has been with us since it all started. She was with us the very first episode of season one, and we are so happy to have her back. Now, this episode is a Q&A session, and we are leaving no questions unasked. We are asking Dr. Burgess everything from GYN to obstetrical to even sexual health questions. Nothing is off limits tonight. But before we even get into those questions, Dr. Burgess, please, please tell everyone how wonderful you are. What? Um, I, you know, I don't <laughs> quite feel that wonderful. Um, so anyway, I am Dr. Brown Burgess. 
I've been practicing about 15 years, actually a little bit over 15 years. I currently work at the Ziff Clinic, which is on universities associated with Nova Southeastern University. So I not only practice obstetrics and gyne, but I also teach medical students and preceptor residents. And I deliver and do my surgeries in the Briar Health System. So um, should I tell them how we met, Solana? I don't think that's important. Yeah, that's important. Go ahead and tell them. Because <laughs> it's been some years. I mean, mm-hmm. not that long ago, but I was this budding OBGYN, walking on the labor and delivery floor, just bebopping around and checking on my patients. Because at that time, I was the in-house doc. And so I managed all the women who did not have physicians or who were, at, who were seen at a community clinic. So I bumped into this like bubbly nurse at the time <laughs> was asking all these questions. And I was like, who is this nurse is asking me all these questions. And that's how I met Shalana. And we kind of, we just clicked um, mm-hmm. right away because we just had this like seed or feel for knowledge and desire for knowledge. And so it, it just kind of just, it just started from there. You know, it just kind of was a chemistry. So, yeah. um, you know, I'm, I'm surprised this is like season three. Oh my gosh. It's season three. Remember it was season one, the first wow. episode. Or <laughs> the pandemic? That was during the pandemic. Shut the door. So, so yeah. much during the pandemic, but, um, so anyway, I love to teach. I hope that I can answer all your questions. I'm going to sip on some wine so I can get ready to answer. Okay. <laughs> So, Dr. Burgess, I'm going to get started. I'm Alexis. And if you can get started with telling us, what are you drinking tonight? You said wine. Okay. So, I drink red wine because, you know, it's supposed to be heart healthy. Hmm. Okay. Um, And it's a little sweet because some red wines are really dry. So, I'm drinking, I'm trying to think, what's in my closet? It's a Roscato. Um, Italia Roscato. So it's a sweet red wine. I'm a sweet oh, person. Really nice. I love crying, but I love drinking red wine. So that's my thing. And it has less calories than your white, your Moscato's. It has less calories. And you know, it's after nine o'clock. So I'm gonna <laughs> <fly>. <laughs> <laughs> so my metabolism is not yeah. when I was in my twins. So I had to drink like the bare minimum, the skinny wine. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you for sharing that. I will keep it in mind. A red sweet wine. It's healthy yes. and it's sweet. Good. So I'm going to get started with some questions that I'm pretty sure all women um, have thought about, right? right? So I want you to expound upon them and share some really great advice with us. So I'm going to get started. Are you ready? How should you clean your vagina? How should you clean your vagina? Yes. So water. Okay. So let me break it down. <laughs> like I tell my patients, and I'm going to tell you all ladies, soap and water on the outside. Make sure you get in between your crevices, meaning your labia minora and majora. So the big part and the small part, get all in between soap and water. No, like Bath and Body Works, shower gels, all that, you know, fresh smelling stuff. You don't need it. You just need plain soap and water. Now, some women say, well, what about the inside, like my vagina? Because technically the outside is your vulva, okay? The inside is the vagina, which the vagina is just a tube, if you could imagine that. And so I tell my patients, because some of them like to douche, and I'll say, well, no. If you just have this undying desire to douche, I tell them to do it just with plain water if they want to feel like they want to feel clean. But don't douche with like summer fields, ocean breeze. I said, because a vagina is, supposed to, is meant to smell like a vagina. So, you know, all that showery, perfumey stuff, no. Because it can actually throw off the pH balance in your vagina. And there's a reason why the pH is what it is. It's because it keeps everything in order, meaning that you don't have an overgrowth of the bad bacteria and you have the overgrowth of the good bacteria, which is lactobacilli. 
So lactobacilli is it it creates a good pH balance, acidic environment for the vagina. And that's important. One, for mucus production. Two, for fertility. Three, is also help to keep the mucosa or the vaginal tissue moist and uh, keep it intact. And also you have the estrogen as well that helps to create a, a sound mucosa, meaning that keeps it strong. So, um, you know, summer's coming up. You know, if you're with your boyfriend, your honey, you're going on a date or whatever. Sometimes women like to like spray some perfume down there. You know, we don't do the powder anymore, right, ladies? Because Johnson Johnson already got in the pocketbook. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So, no talcum powder, no sprays. You need to wash your soap and water. Now, there are wipes over the counter that you can use, but if you use those wipes, they need to be unscented. Okay, not scented. Don't do it, not a good idea because it can irritate the lining of the vagina. It can also irritate the outside as well. So what happens if you decide to use some Bath and Body Works or Victoria's Secret sprays and you end up with a discharge, almost like a fishy odor? Um, in that case, you probably have bacterial vaginosis. So back in the day, I mean, I've only been practicing for 15 years, but Back in the day, I used to say, we'll give you some antibiotics and you need to stop using the sprays. Now what I do is I like to put a patient on a probiotic to help with the flora, even acidophilus. Acidophilus has lactobacilli in it to help with the flora of the guts and your vagina to help with getting rid of the bacteria and reorganizing or restructuring your pH, rebalancing your pH, I should say. Um, because I find that even if you are not giving antibiotics, the bacterial vaginosis will go away because eventually the body will naturally go back to its pH. Um, so I'm actually moving away from giving antibiotics and telling women, okay, why don't you take some probiotics and you make sure that it's not getting worse or the odor is not getting worse. If it's getting worse, I will probably give them an antibiotic, but I'll also put them on a probiotic because the antibiotics will actually make the pH worse. It will get rid of the bad bacteria, but then you have either a yeast infection because the pH is still not where it's supposed to be. So some women who have recurrent bacterial vaginosis or vaginitis, I give them boric acid capsules. Mm -hmm. So there is a, there's pharmacies around town, not that many, I think there's three in Broward County that actually make boric acid capsules that women can place in the vagina once a day. And they can do that for seven to 10 days to help with the bacterial vaginosis. Or there's actually a company based out of Atlanta called the Honey Pot. I think it is black owned, but I'm not quite sure. It's called the Honey Pot. And they, have, yes, and they have boric acid suppositories over the counter, which are much cheaper than what the custom pharmacies do around town. And that's a seven-day supply. So I'm getting out of the habit of giving antibiotics, but I do give it for some patients because they just feel like they need to have an antibiotic. And I'll give it to them, but I'll tell them, you need to take a probiotic to rebalance the vagina. So, you know, I always tell them, you can get BV from douching, shower gels, shower foams. That's all for the outside, nothing inside the vagina. So the vagina is an internal organ. The outside okay. of the vagina is the vulva, okay? You just got to be careful when you're washing that you make sure you don't get that shower gel inside the vagina. Another now, Dr. Burgess, yes. so there's a very popular wash called the Pangea wash. Pangea. Have you heard of it? Yes, I've heard of Pangea. I haven't tested it because I, I mean, look, I have patients from all walks of life. I'm on a university campus. So I got like young girls and I got older women. So when they come to me, they're like, yeah, I use Pangea. Okay. What is that? And I have to do my research because I got to figure out what it is. Um, and so Pangea <laughs> is a little interesting. I just tell them that, you know, you can use the wash on the outside, but nothing on the inside because that is the vagina and the vagina has a certain pH that if there's any imbalance, it is gonna cause some irritation, inflammation and discharge. 
I even tell patients, even if there's oral sex, sometimes you can have bacterial vaginosis after oral sex because there's a lot of bacteria in our mouth that keeps our teeth free from crabs, which is great for the mouth, but not for the vagina. So Mm -hmm. even though women love the, you know, they love the click, but you have to make- summers. You better come on now, Dr. Burgess. Speak on that thing. Um, You probably (laughs) need to make sure after you have oral sex, you might want to get some honeypot. And for a couple days, you need to use the boric acid to help rebalance the pH. Also, I tell women, even in, in regards to hygiene, even like washcloths, like after three days, after two or three days with a washcloth, you need to wash it. Don't use it again. Because remember, if you're using shower gel on the outside one time, you use it again the second day, remember, you still have that shower gel or foam that's still on the washcloth. So when you're washing, you can inadvertently get some into the vagina. And what should we do, Dr. Burgess, when it gets inside of the vagina? Because that is something that I feel like we haven't heard. <laughs> so when, you mean as far as the foam or shower gel? Like the foam? The, yes, it could be the Pangea wash. It could be Dove soap, whatever. You're saying tonight that we should only be using it outside. So if it happens to go inside, which it can, you just watch it. Um, because I'm going to be honest with you, Dr. Burgess likes to smell good too. And so if I inadvertently get some in my vagina, I watch it. I still take my probiotics or you just actually have a supply of boric acid capsules in your cabinet that you just keep on hand. If you notice that you're starting to develop an odor, some people just preemptively do it, especially if it's after the menstrual cycle, because blood has a tendency to throw the pH off as well. And it can cause, they can cause bacterial vaginosis. So a lot of cases when patients also have a bacterial vaginosis after menstrual cycle, I'll tell them, just go ahead for seven days, just use the boric acid. So I have a box of boric acid because you just never know. Like, you know, if you change soaps, you don't know how your body's going to respond to Mm. it. And so as a woman, as you get older, you know, secretions change because our estrogen changes, right? If we're sexually active, we're exposed to bacteria that we, we may not be commonly exposed to. Like on a male or female genitalia, you know, there could be macroplasma um, that may be transmitted during sexual intercourse or if you're having oral sex or if you have a partner who's having anal sex and you all having also vaginal sex, there's a lot of bacteria exchange that occurs. So as a woman, you really got to stay on top of your hygiene, really know your body. So I do tell patients, I'm like, look, you got to know when something doesn't smell right, make sure, you know, you get some boric acid, take your probiotics, but boric acid most, most importantly, because probiotics takes a long time to actually have some type of effect. I think everybody should take probiotics like for the rest of their life, but that's just my opinion. Okay. Because it helps with the gut and everything else. Okay. So I'm going to be, be quiet, Alexis. <laughs> no, thank you. You were really helpful with the information. I've heard some things before, but a lot of it was brand new. So I'm really grateful for you to share that with us. So we are going to get on with the next question. What are some misconceptions about our menstrual cycles? Are there certain foods we should stay away from during that period? So the first question, so what are some of the misconceptions? I don't really know. That's a good question. I mean, you know, everyone has like names for it, like, you know, you're on the rag, um, Red Robin. Um, I don't really know. As far as misconceptions, I think what it is, For my older, I'll start my older population. For instance, a lady may come in and she may have gone through menopause um, at the age of 62, has not had a period for five years. She stopped having her periods at 55. And she says, well, I had some spotting three months ago, but I was good. And you're like, no, that's not good because that is postmenopausal bleeding and it could be something else. It could be endometrial cancer, cervical cancer, vaginal vulvar cancer, well, vaginal cancer. So 
I think there's a misconception when it comes to that because women think, okay, well, I haven't had it for a year. Yeah, I'm probably in menopause. But then when they bleed again a year later and it only lasts for one day, they're fine with it. And I'm like, no, even though the most common cause of postmenopausal bleeding is atrophy, endometrial atrophy is the most common cause. You want to rule that out, okay? You want to make sure there's no type of malignancy or cancer that's triggered this bleeding. So I think for the older population, that's a misconception. Like you should not be bleeding anymore. Because if you are, it's, if it's not endometrial atrophy, meaning that the lining of the uterus is so thin because there's no estrogen present, if it's not that, then it's something else that's producing estrogen causing her to bleed. So now you really got to look into certain cancers that may be causing her to bleed. I think another misconception is for a younger population is some people think that, okay, I bled for like two days and that's not my period. And in some cases it may be, I mean, our menstrual cycle is influenced by so many factors, hormones, stress, type of foods that we eat, our diets, weight loss and weight gain all play a part in the duration of our period, how heavy the flow is, and if we have cramps. Um, so that's gonna, I'm gonna leave that into the second question is, is there any foods that we should avoid when we're on a menstrual cycle? So I need to tell myself that because I'm gonna tell you right now, I still menstruate and every month, like for four days, I crave sweet and salty stuff. I don't care what it is. It can be sweet and salty popcorn. It can be chips. And that's because of the, that's the hormones and that's the influence it has on me. So I usually tell patients that if you're having a problem with bloating or swelling, you need to try to avoid salts because your body responds to the progesterone that you're you know, producing and you are retaining fluid. So you need to avoid anything that will recall, cause water retention. And that's including alcohol and even caffeine, which is all the things that you crave when you're on your menstrual cycle. Because certain hormones, the lovely estrogen and progesterone, the LH and FSH, the whole mechanism of how things occur when we're on our menstrual cycle stimulates cravings. And everybody responds differently. Some women actually get premenstrual mood disorders, uh, mood disorder with their menstrual cycle. Yeah, I think I'm one of those people, Dr. Uh -huh. So in a case like that, <laughs> and I have a couple patients, they, I said, okay, now we can do this one or two ways. One, you just need to stay away from everybody. Or two, I do put them on a certain birth control pill that will help regulate it. I do lean on birth control as well, but how do you feel about SSRIs, like antidepressants, if uh -huh. a patient doesn't want to be on birth control, like if they're trying to get pregnant or? So there is a medication called Seraphim, which is a low dose. The problem is that I don't like to go into the antidepressants or even anti-anxiety because it takes, SSRIs take a long time to achieve effect. It takes mm -hmm. about a good four weeks. So if she's only experiencing this episode, like what, every month for like, what, five days, she will not appreciate the full effect of it because that means she has to have four periods before she can see the true effect of an SSRI. So I've had one patient who just said, you know, I don't want any birth control. So what I do is I will offer a seraphim or I'll say, okay, let's just do a trial, three month trial of the birth control pills. Um, and some will say, well, you know, Dr. Burns, I'm really trying to get pregnant. And I said, well, um, in a case like that, then, okay, we'll avoid the OCPs. I don't want to put you on an antidepressant because eventually we got to what? Take you off the antidepressants if you get pregnant. So then that's when I call my friend, the psychiatrist or a psychologist or a therapist. And I'll say, okay, what can we do to help cope with this situation? Because this is always, I, like I said, I have one patient that's like that. And it's always, I can never quite get to the resolution of the problem. And um, I always tell them, I'm like, look, I understand. I, I totally get the premenstrual disorder. And so a lot of times what I will do is just put her on a low dose 
SSRI. And I just told her, I said, if you, when you get pregnant, I have to take you off of it. A lot of times when patients, when it's very hard to get it under control, they do have an underlying mood disorder. And sometimes it takes a little bit more digging to say, okay, you know what? Yes, you do have premenstrual mood disorder, but there is a true mood disorder up under here that we really need to address. So yeah, yeah, it, it takes a little bit of digging, but it does come, it eventually comes out. Thank you. Is it a myth or a fact that you shouldn't have sex during your period? I think we've all been there. <laughs> okay. It's all up to you, boo, what you want to do. Uh, <laughs> because I do have patients who do have sex when they're on their period. I have patients who be like, uh-uh, don't even touch me. Uh-uh. So this is, this is how I, this is how I answer this. It's up to the patient. I do tell patients who do like to have intercourse while they're on their period that they need to make sure that it's in a monogamous relationship, okay? Because number one, you do have, even though it's, it's menstrual blood, there's always an increased risk of transmitting STIs. If she's a young lady who's very promiscuous, I'm like, well, you need to have on a condom if you're going to do that. And maybe you should also have on a female condom. Having sex with a, with a male condom and a female condom is not enjoyable. So a lot of people don't do it. And a lot of people who do have intercourse while they're on their periods, they have their ways of doing it and, you know, they're not going to stop. So I would tell them like, look, well, there's somebody needs to have on a condom, especially if you're not in a monogamous relationship because of the simple fact that it increases the risk of STIs. Um, so is it a myth? No. It's, I mean, you know, some women say, no, I'm not doing it. Some women will. And I, I, I have patients on both ends of the spectrum that freely have intercourse. Um, you okay. know, they may not have intercourse in the first couple of days if they're bleeding really heavy, but mm -hmm. a lot of them, a lot of them do. Is it a myth or a fact that every woman has a 28 day cycle? I recently stopped taking birth control. My periods are 45 days apart now. Is this something I should expect for a while? And are there other side effects I should be on the lookout for? All right. So the first part of the question is, no, not everyone is a 28-day cycle. Some women are less than that. Yes. Like 21. Some are 30. Some are even 31, but that's rare. The most common is 28-day cycle. Most women are 28-day cycle, but you do have some women who are less than that and who are more than that. Some women are 30-day. So that's why it's important that each woman tracks their cycle, especially if you're in the childbearing years, because if you do end up being pregnant, the first thing I'm going to ask or any other OB guy is going to ask, say, well, when was your last menstrual period? What was the first day of your last menstrual period? Nowadays, folks don't know. And I'm like, y'all got a smartphone. Come on. Back right. in the day, I used to have a little red marker, be like, okay, first day. So, right. um, and then also it's good to know your cycle because if, say for instance, you want birth control and you want to be on pills. So it's nice to know that you're on a 28 day cycle. So then I will give you a 28 day cycle pill pack and not a 21 day cycle pill pack. So that's why it's so important, but it's, you know, it's not the, the most common is 28 days, but not everyone is 28 days. And remember that menstrual cycle is going to fluctuate. If you're under extreme stress, you may even miss your period because stress in itself mm. can wreak havoc on the body, but it can also alter the hormone levels because you have an increased release of cortisol, which is our stress hormone, because our body gets into that fight and flight stage. So that's why that's important. Um, and then in regards to the birth control pills. So this particular person stopped it and she's 45 days in. It all just depends on how long she was on the birth control pills and to what age is she. Uh, if you know, if you have a patient who, let's say she was on the pills since the age of 30, she just starts, she decides to stop taking the pills 15 years later at the age of 45. So even though she had regular periods on her pills, 
Now that she's 45, she's perimenopausal. So her body naturally may not be making as much estrogen and progesterone as it was when she was in her 30s while she was taking a pill. So that 45 days could actually be something where she's heading into you know, menopause. We don't know. So it all just depends. Say, for instance, someone's on a pill starting at 25 and she stopped it five years later and she noticed that her periods or menstrual cycle is changed. That is normal because remember, when we take birth control pills, our body is naturally making its own hormones, right? So we have to give a dose of pills that will override your natural body's capacity of making the hormone. So your menstrual cycle is like a party, okay? Your body is making its hormones and everything's great. I prescribe a birth control pill. The hormones in that pill have to be strong enough to override your natural hormones in order to regulate your cycle and provide contraception. So in a case like that sometimes, and when you take it for a long period of time, it does alter the pattern of your menstrual cycle. And it may not go back to what it was before, especially if you're taking it for a long period of time. Another thing is that, you know, if you're around women who produce pheromones, just like honeybees, um, it is going to alter your menstrual cycle as well. So that particular question, we don't know how long it's going to last. Um, it may last until she gets it evaluated, or it may last another two or three months. So it's really hard to tell how long that menstrual cycle is going to last after she stopped taking it. So in a case like that, when patients say, well, you know, Dr. Bird has not stopped taking a pill, what, two months ago? My period is 45 days. I usually wait about three months. If she has not regulated her cycle where she's doing less than 45 days and she's more like 28 or 30 or even 31, then I actually draw lab work. I check her hormone levels just to make sure everything's okay because she could very well be pre-menopause or perimenopause. So that's why it was very important that the patient knows what her cycle was before she was on the pills and it's important to have some type of follow-up afterwards. So after three months, things should be regulated. And are there other side effects I should be on the lookout for? For a prolonged use of birth control pills? Yes. So there is a, studies have shown that there is a uh, delay in fertility for some women because it does alter the menstrual um, mm -hmm. cycle. So you guys know how birth control pills work. Birth control pills work by stop you, stopping ovulation. So it stops your ovary from releasing the egg ovulation. Um, and so if you've been on it for like 10 or 15 years and you have, you know, you just have not been ovulating because you've been taking these pills, then when you take, when you stop the pills and you're trying to get pregnant, sometimes it can take six months, it can take a year, it can take two years for your fertility to return back to normal. And when it's been over a year, then what I do is I actually do prescribe like Clomid or Letrozole to like induce ovulation because for so long, the ovaries have not been ovulating because you've been on the pills. So you got to warn patients when they have had it for a prolonged period of time. So I get this a lot um, about performing self-breast exams. How should it be done what should we look out for when we are completing self-breast exams? All right. So first of all, about 50% of women actually do self-breast exams. Like every woman I think should do self-breast exams, but not all women do. I, this is what I tell patients. I say, look, self-breast exam and mammogram leads to early detection. But then women say, well, I don't know what I'm feeling for. Like, I, you know, they're like, I don't know what I'm feeling for. I don't want, I, I just don't know. So when I do my breast exams in the office, I actually teach my patients. I'm like, okay. And they know every time they come in, I'm, when they come in for an annual exam, I teach them. So you can either do it clockwise, in which I start either at like 12 or one o'clock. And I use the ball of my fingers just the ball, not the tips, but the ball, which is the most sensitive part of the finger. And I work from one o'clock from the outside of the breast 
and work my way all the way in. So it's almost like a spiral technique until I get to the nipple. I actually squeeze the nipple, make sure there's no discharge. And even though there's discharge, it may not be related to the breasts. You could have like a tumor on your pituitary, which is a gland in the head, or it can be just a blocked duct. It could be an infection. So you should check that. I also tell them to check up under their arm, right at the base of their armpit, which is the tail of the breast. About 15% of breast cancers can occur in that area because it's a rich blood supply, the tumor necrosis factors that are being released, if there's a tumor that's beginning to grow, love that blood supply. So it's very important that she also check up under her arm. Another way to do a self-breast exam is to go up and down. The key thing is that you wanna be, you wanna be methodical and you wanna be thorough. You wanna examine the whole entire breast. The way I describe to a patient, I'll say, okay, I know you're like, Dr. Burtis, I don't know what I'm feeling. I said, first of all, you should never check your breasts while you're on your menstrual cycle. You either check it a week before or a week after, but never during your period because the hormones actually change the breast tissue when you're on your menstrual cycle and it makes it very confusing to do so. So I describe, this is how I describe it. I'm like, imagine a bowl of jello. Everyone knows what jello is, right? Gelatin. Imagine it's all chopped up and there's a marble inside. You got to feel for that marble. That is how it may feel like. If you get your mind thinking that, then it makes it easier for you to detect when there's a mass. Now, that mass, if you squeeze it and if it changes shape, it's probably a cyst, but still come in and see me, okay? If you don't change shape, it's probably like a tumor mass, something solid. You still need to come in and see me because we need to do imaging studies. If you have a nipple discharge, come in to see me. Sometimes, a lot of times, it's overstimulation of the breasts, and that can happen also. But I always tell patients, I'm like, just come in if you have a question in mind. You need to do it before or after your menstrual cycle. And it can be any size. It can be a nickel dime quarter, any size. Also, one breast is naturally larger than the other, okay? It's either your dominant hand or it's the other side. One is slightly larger than the other. If it's three or four times the size of your other breast, there's something going on. Either you got a mass or you got some type of lymphoma in the breast and you need to get that removed. So, you know, we talk about hot girl summer. Hot girl summer is all about women, empowerment, mm -hmm. and their inner self-confidence. And you've got to know your body. Like, look, you need to touch your breasts. You need to touch your vagina. Like, you need to make sure that you are intact. And a lot of women are just not intact with their bodies and not, they don't know their bodies. And I'm like, I can't, I can only do so much as a physician. I can only do, do mm -hmm. so much as far as what my books teach you, what my experience teach me, excuse me. And, but you ultimately can tell me if there's something wrong. And a lot of times as women, particularly in American culture, particularly African-Americans, we are just totally not in sync with our bodies. Mm -hmm. That's why I like Megan the Stallion, because like, even though, you know, she, she's out there. That's her own way of saying it. <laughs> yeah. But I was like, you know, I have to feel that, I have to have that Megan the Stallion type of sensation sometimes. I need to get that confidence in me. I mean, I'm mm -hmm. not going to be running around with some knee-high boots and running buck wild, but I got to, I got to get that inner self-confidence. Yeah. So, right. you know, it's very important that you do self-breast exams mm -hmm. because, Remember, I only see you once a year for an annual exam. And that's yeah. only one, that's one day out of a week, out of a month, out of 12 months. Mm -hmm. So it's very important that they do self-breast exams. And I tell them that, I'm like, you need to check your breasts. Check the yeah. targets. ACOG has recommended guidelines for mammograms to start at age 40 for a majority of women. But there are some situations where we step outside of those guidelines? Can you go into detail when we would do that? So the first thing is you always want to have, take a good history, particularly a family history. You know, if you have a patient who has had a first or second degree relative who has had breast cancer before the age of 40, she may be at risk for BRCA. BRCA, BRCA, one or two is a type of mutation that's on different chromosomes. Okay, so BRCA1 is a mutation of chromosome 17. 
because you all know that we have 22 chromosomes, I think. I mean, I think you all have 23. And it's <laughs> the third one, the last pair is sex. So mm -hmm. mom and dad put that one together. So um, BRCA2 is on chromosome 13. So that particular mutation in the genome puts that person at risk for not only breast cancer, but ovarian cancer. So if she's had a first or second degree relative under the age of 40 develop breast cancer and, and or has had a first or second degree relative that has ovarian cancer, particularly high grade ovarian cancer, you need to screen her for BRCA. Never do it before the age of 21. I'll tell you why. Because the intervention is a little bit more extreme. So to test someone who's 18, if she's BRCA, really is not, you're really not going to do anything. You're just going to like increase her anxiety. Wait till she's 21 mm -hmm. when she can make decisions about her body as an adult. And she may say, you know what, I'm going to finish childbearing. And at the age of 40, which is recommended, I'm going to do a risk reduction salpingo-oophrectomy. Salpingo-oophrectomy is the removal <laughs> of both fallopian tubes <laughs> and ovaries. Um, yeah, say that five times, fast. <laughs> so, um, a person who has BRCA1 and 2 have like, I think it's 75% uh, chance of developing breast cancer. So that's why at the age of 40, it's important that you offer them to get a mastectomy prophylactically. Okay, I know it seems very extreme, but you know, if you're, if you got a family history of breast cancer, no, you don't want to, you don't even want to chance that. So it's important, you can do a prophylactic mastectomy bilateral, and you can also do risk-reducing uh, salpingo-oophrectomy. This is the reason why it's not good to test them before the age of 21, because then you like, well, she's probably worried about, can she have kids, you know, because it's recommended that you do take out the ovaries. Women who have BRCA1 have, I think, a 40% chance of developing ovarian cancer. It's a family, it's a genetic trait. And so we try our best to be very prophylactic, meaning we try to stay on, on top of it and make sure we do not increase the lady's risk. Also, so you've got to have that talk with the patients, even family members. You know, you start asking about family members who got breast cancer in the family. When you all go to the next family union, mm -hmm. you're like, oh, what happened to Aunt Claire? <laughs> Oh, you didn't know she had breast cancer. You're like, okay, she on my daddy's side. Okay. You know, you have to start putting things together because a lot of times we don't know our family history and like nobody don't say anything, you know? So it's very important that you ask questions <laughs> uh, because uh, particularly in the African-American community, we do not, we do not share that with other family members. Mm -hmm. And so you just have to ask and find out because then you can put the pieces together and say, you know what, Dr. So-and-so, I think I'm at an increased risk for breast cancer. Can you screen me for BRCA? And you can do that for your OB-GYN. I mean, you're paying for the visit, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and you know, some OB-GYNs will say, well, I don't think you need it. And you're like, no, let me tell you why. And you go over your list, you're like, Aunt Claire got it. Uh, my mm -hmm. cousin, blah, blah, blah. My mother got it. My grandmother got it. And they all were under the age of 40 or they were 42 and somebody had ovarian cancer. So no, I said, I would like to be tested. So it's very important. Another thing also, okay. So say for instance, your mom has breast cancer and she got it at 39. That means that you have to get your mammogram 10 years prior to when she was mm -hmm. diagnosed with breast cancer. So you have to get your first mammogram at 29 years of age. I always do a baseline mammogram at the age of 40. That's just me. And then I tell my patients, you can wait two or three years later and get another mammogram. But starting at the age of 45, I do it every year. Some of my patients love mm -hmm. me for that. Some of them hate me for that. And I'm like, well, you know, it's up to you. But I always feel like, okay, if you want to not do the mammogram, I need for you to self do yourself breast exams. Like, come in, mm -hmm. prepare, and be an advocate for your own health. So, you know, you got to have that talk and you get, you have mm -hmm. to really dig into your family history. We were having a discussion actually on yesterday and I was saying that social history as well as family history is very, very important. And so the more thorough you are with giving that history, the better we can take care of you. So it's not just about 
your physical health that we, we should be interested in. It should be the social as well as the, the family history. But one last GYN question before we move on to the OB. Um, I wanted to touch base briefly about hormone replacement therapy for our population that are perimenopausal and postmenopausal. Because we know we, we get a lot of patients that have concerns about hot flashes or intimacy issues as far as with vaginal dryness at a certain age. So what are some therapies out there for this population? So when it comes to hormone replacement therapy, the goal is to help the woman transition and to deal with her basal motor symptoms. It is no longer recommended that we tell women that they need to be on hormone replacement therapy for cardio protection, for heart protection, because that was back in the day before the WHO study, women's health study. And that was how I was taught. So now you give hormone, hormone replacement therapy to help with the symptoms when a woman's going through menopause. Of course, there's some women who can't have it. I mean, if she's got blood clots, if she has AFib, if she's had a history of a DVT, meaning deep vein thrombosis, a blood clot in the leg, or if she's had a blood clot in the lungs, or she's had a prior history of a heart attack, uh, or she's had some pre-existing malignancy, no, she's not a candidate for HRT. Tell her to take some magnesium if she has some insomnia, or bring her a fan and a cool drink of water. <laughs> you know? um, but I'll talk a little bit more about that. And so for HRT, if they're having hot flashes or night sweats, and it has a lot to do with the thermal regulators in our body. Like I just had a hot, I just had a hot flash like five minutes ago, but I, <laughs> I knew what caused it is the wine. So I always tell patients, I'm like, find out what's triggering your hot flashes and night sweats so that we can minimize that initially. Um, and then we can do definitely do the HRT. I, if they have hot flashes and nice sweats, they can take a pill form, meaning a systemic HRT by pill. If it's vaginal dryness, localized estrogen is much better. Localized estrogen in the vagina, and which that has a little bit more flexibility. So if she's had, um, you know, issues with a blood clot, I still don't give it to her because mm -hmm. I'm like, just in case. But there's obviously, there's still some people who actually still do it. But um, it's more of a localized effect on the estrogen. So it's more of a lifestyle thing. It's no longer a medical indication. But I will tell you, as a woman gets older, you know, she's producing less estrogen. She's in menopause. So she's like not making much estrogen anymore. When you give her estrogen, her bone health gets better. So um, if she's at an increased risk of osteoporosis, meaning, okay, if she's Caucasian, Asian descent, is she thin, like her BMI has to be like less than, I think, 24. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's, there's some other things too. If she's immobile, uh, if she has some immobility or disability where she's not moving as much, she's at an increased risk of osteoporosis. In some cases, the systemic HRT will help. Um, it will help with bone health because that estrogen will stimulate bone rebuilding. Um, and it does work. It works really great. But you need to put them on the lowest dose possible. So when I put my patients on HRT, I go through an extensive history. Like I want to make sure she doesn't have uncontrolled hypertension because I don't need for her to stroke out on some estrogen. I need to make sure she doesn't have any other risk factors. And, you know, if she's got diabetes and it's uncontrolled or hyper high blood pressure is uncontrolled, no she's not a candidate for estrogen. And you have to have that talk. Uh, if she's not a candidate, I don't even offer bioidentical hormones, which a lot of times is plant-based synthetic hormones. I don't even offer that because it's hard to have that regulated through the FDA. The problem with that is, is that it's not under strict guidelines with FDA compared to the pharmaceutical ones. Um, and then if she has to be on hormone replacement therapy, it needs to be the lowest dose mm -hmm. and just enough to keep her satisfied and happy. Every day she wakes up, she don't have to deal with hot flashes or night sweats. She's not in a Zoom meeting. Her hair is not all messed up. Her fingers are all messed up. That's good. Keep her on a lower dose. Sometimes you have to bump it up a little bit and that's fine. 
But what I do tell her when I put her on hormone replacement therapy of estrogen and progesterone, I also tell her that she needs to one exercise for bone health Two, she needs to avoid what are some of the factors that are causing her hot flashes and night sweats that she needs to avoid. Um, so that's very important. She needs to take her calcium, her multivitamin that has magnesium that actually helps with sleep and insomnia. And that helps in about 40% of women. Some women do have to be put on some type of sleep aids during uh, menopause. So that can happen. If they have a uterus, meaning they still got their womb, they need to be on combination hormones. They need to be on estrogen and progesterone because if you just put on estrogen, the lining inside the uterus is just going to grow because she's not having her periods, right? And eventually, if she starts to bleed, it may be too late because it could be some underlying cancer that may have developed because of the estrogen. Um, if she's had a hysterectomy where the uterus has been removed, then you can give her just progesterone only, okay? So estrogen builds, estrogen. Yep. estrogen builds up the lining and progesterone thins out the lining, okay? So they kind of get the idea of why we do combination if they have a uterus. And then if she don't have a uterus, I forgot, it's just estrogen. I said progesterone, estrogen, okay? Because it's the estrogen that really helps with everything. And if she has vaginal dryness because she's sexually active, using localized estrogen helps, meaning just in the vagina. For the women who can't use HRTs, I know that there are some SSRIs that can be useful for hot flashes. And I think clonidine, but you have to use those carefully because clonidine is an antihypertensive. So it can drop blood pressure, but those things can also be used. And then there's natural products that can be used like um, black cohosh and evening primrose. So yeah, there is a lot of herbal supplements out there. Soy you have to be careful with because you know mm -hmm. it can increase the risk of any cardiac event. You have to be careful with the black cohosh though when you have a uterus because it can mm -hmm. lead to a thick lining which can increase the chance of endometrial cancer. Mm -hmm. Red clover is another herbal supplement that you can do. Estrovin over-the-counter, it's sold at any, like Walgreens, Target, whatever, Walmart. Just keep in mind, remember, we're herbal supplements. They're not FDA-approved. So your first batch that you may get from the store may be one strength. Then a month later, when you pick it up again, it may be a different strength because it all depends on the grower who's growing the herbs. So it's not really, like, regulated. So, you know, you will get some mixed responses um, initially when you um, start taking it. But I do have a number of patients that are on uh, certain herbal supplements. I do have to ask like three or four times mm -hmm. because they'll be like, oh, yeah, I'm doing this. I'm like, well, that explains what's going on here because <laughs> they won't say anything. You're like, oh, you're on St. John's Ward. OK, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> why you are bleeding so so um it's important that when you do yeah. meet with the doctor and you're taking herbal supplements tell them everything because yeah. we don't you, know, you never know if we prescribe something that may have an interaction to the herbal supplements because people mm -hmm. just like not say anything um and so that's important it was one other thing so as far as medication you can do gabapentin which is for like neuropathy, for like diabetics who have issues with nerve pain. You can also use it for hot flashes and night sweats. So in certain SSRIs, like Shalana was saying, it's also good for hot flashes and night sweats. But the mm -hmm. ultimate thing is trying to figure out what is the trigger factor and being prepared for that. Well, I am going to jump in with some OB questions and we're going to kick it off with one that is personal to me. I experienced a pregnancy loss um, very late in my pregnancy a few years back. And one of the pressing questions that I have and, you know, and just talking with a few of my friends who have experienced a similar loss, one of the things we always want to know um, is about getting pregnant again after pregnancy loss. Are there certain things we can do being in a high-risk pregnancy to ensure that we have a healthy pregnancy the next time? Or is there anything that we need to know or just be prepared for, for that pregnancy after a loss? Well, the first thing is that you got to find out why you lost pregnancy in the first place. 
if it was because there was a blood clot in the placenta, then you may need to be tested to see if you have some type of underlying thrombophilia. A lot of times patients will develop antiphospholipid antibodies, which is antiphospholipid syndrome, uh, which is the most common acquired thrombophilia ever. Um, so it has nothing to do with family or genetics. You got to find out, was there, because you said late pregnancy, right? Mm -hmm. okay. So we're talking about second and third trimester. So there should have been some form of workup. If not an autopsy, at least your OB-GYN should have brought you in to do additional workup. That's what's supposed to happen. Whenever a woman has a pregnancy loss, um, there needs to be some type of workup because maybe either one, she may have fibroids where the pregnancy had detached from the wall and she ends up losing a baby either in the first or second trimester or in the third trimester, if there's a placental abruption in the presence of a fibroid, that could be a cause of the loss. So you wanna fix that during the interpregnancy phase. So when I say interpregnancy, that's like hopes that you're gonna be pregnant again. You gotta fix that before you get pregnant again. If there's a blood clot in the placenta or in the cord, then there might be, you might have some underlying thrombophilia. Um, and so you need to come in and every woman, regardless if she had a live birth pregnancy loss, there should be a six-week follow-up. Six weeks, and you know, now we're expanding our postpartum visits now so that we can address and accommodate the needs that moms need in order to have a successful pregnancy next time or that they're in optimal health the next time she gets pregnant. But you need to come in to do a workup. First of all, one is to find out what happened. Was there a genetic disorder? In a case like that, we really don't have any control of it, but we definitely will, next time you get pregnant, we'll order additional testing early on to see if there is a higher chance of you developing it again, or you know, is there, is there something coming from dad? Also, when a woman has pregnancy loss, it's important to not only follow up because there, people develop depression. Um, in the first time in the history of Florida, maternal mortality and morbidity, depression is one of the factors for maternal morbidity. Um, and that's because unfortunately, 5% of the women, of the 764 women who have died in 2019, depression, 5% of those women suffer from depression and unfortunately took their lives. That's the first time in history that depression was ever listed as a cause of maternal death or pregnancy related death. So continuity of care is so important and making sure that you have the proper workup. Um, and why did that pregnancy loss happen in the first place? Now, if it was a cord accident, we have no control over, but that means that from a OB perspective, I'm not gonna wait till you get to 40 weeks. I may induce you at 39 weeks, or I may start having you get monitored a little bit more closely when you get into the third trimester, which is around 24 weeks, where you come in every week and you're put on the monitor, you're getting ultrasounds every week. And you know, even sometimes when we do that, it still can lead to a fetal demise. Um, and so, you know, having a baby is truly a miracle. Even though I look at my teenage sons and I just be like, I'm gonna kill you. But they, it's a miracle. We'll try our best because we want you to have a successful pregnancy. So definitely prevention of any kind and fixing the problem before you get pregnant again. So I hope that answered your question. It did. Yes, it did. It did very much so. Um, so that's a really good segue into the next question that I had because with COVID happening, a lot of people were shocked up in the house for the last year and a lot of people are getting pregnant or ready to get pregnant or, you know, thinking about it. Uh, but with the vaccine available now to so many people, the COVID-19 vaccine available to so many people, expecting mothers or women who want to be pregnant, they may wonder if it's safe to take the vaccine if you're pregnant or want to be pregnant. Can you share your perspective on if someone who wants to get pregnant should take the vaccine? If so, why or why not? All right. So the CDC just came out with a report on pregnant women and COVID-19. I think it came out Monday or it may have been last week, the end of last week. But before that time, there was no testing on pregnant women 
And I was an OB covering the floor. Let me tell you, half our ward was full of COVID-19 patients who were pregnant. And a majority of them did very well. But the thing about pregnancy, COVID-19 progresses very rapidly. We don't know why in a pregnant woman, but she can be fine one day, she's short of breath the next day, and the next day we're intubating her. Um, it's a rapid progression. So no one did any testing on pregnant women until recently. And the CDC says now it's okay to do so um, for a woman to get the vaccine. So let me tell you my little tidbit on that. All right, so during the, the pandemic, during the heart of the pandemic, I am still teaching students, I'm still with residents. So we started going into COVID-19 research. They did a study in China, and I think there was recently a study done in New York of five hospitals uh, that put all their data together and found out that the COVID-19 COVID virus, if mom got it, the baby didn't get it. Mm. If the baby got it, it may have been from a healthcare worker who was asymptomatic or it could have been from a family member. So there's no transmission of the virus from the mom placenta to baby. So with that being said, every time I go into a room, my patients ask me, well, Dr. Burge, should I get the COVID-19 vaccine? I'm like, yes. And my pregnant patients. And I'll say, well, before that study came out with the CDC, it was hard because it was hard for me to convince my patients to get the, the vaccine. Mm -hmm. And basically, I advise if you're going to get it, whether you're trying to get pregnant, even though we don't know the studies with the fertility issue, my family is like, well, there could be issues with infertility. I said, well, this shop is closed, but I do have a younger <laughs> take the COVID-19 and she's like, I'm worried about my fertility. I'm like, well, we don't even have studies. I mean, the vaccine's only been out for like, what, five months? I mean, I got mine in January, like right a couple of weeks after it hit. Um, and so I think it's been out since de December, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so we don't even know it's going to affect fertility. Now, there is a study going on right now to see if the vaccine affects menstrual cycles. And I've had two people who said, after I got the vaccine, my menstrual cycle changed a little bit. It became very watery. And I was like, I don't know. This could be, I don't know. So, you know, I'm tracking those patients to see if there's going to be any change and I'm going to be in a lookout mm -hmm. for any research because this is all brand new, brand mm -hmm. spanking new. Mm -hmm. So if you want to wait, if you want to wait and you don't have anyone at home that might be immune compromised or around elderly, then you could wait. Just still practice wearing a mask, social mm -hmm. distance, wash your hands. Um, but I recommend I recommend the Pfizer. I've always recommend the Pfizer because I started doing research from the very beginning when they start talking about the vaccine. Because I was like, wait a minute. Because I know that I would have to be one of the candidates that would have to get it. And I said, okay, well, let me start doing my research now. I like the way Pfizer does the research. I mean, I like the CEO. I like the whole mission. I like Pfizer. The way they conducted their studies it was much very thorough. Moderna was about the same. The thing is with Pfizer, mm -hmm. um, it covers like about 94%. So Caroline, if you're thinking about getting the vaccine, I highly recommend you doing it. Get the Pfizer. Pfizer is being offered at free at T.Y. Park in Hollywood. Drive up, girl. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's going to be a far drive for Caroline because she lives in Georgia. <laughs> you know what? Okay. You can get the Moderna if you want to, but get the Pfizer because they're well studied. Mm -hmm. I'm always suspicious about Johnson & Johnson because Johnson & Johnson, their work ethic, or their, I, I think they need to restructure their research and development department because mm -hmm. they've had some issues for the last couple of years. Yeah. The opiate and the fentanyl. Mm -hmm. um, you know, now we got this powder and now mm -hmm. vaccine. And vaccine. vaccine. I mean, in the early 80s, they had the issue with acetaminophen. So, you know, there's some, there's mm -hmm. some organizations structuring that needs to go on up in that company Nothing yeah happen but i would go with pfizer or moderna 
And I've had patients ask me that all the time. But you already touched on the follow-up question that I had, and it was about um, the vaccine and some rumors that it might cause infertility in women. Those are rumors. Do you know what the rumor was when COVID-19 first came out? The rumor was that Black people couldn't get it. Girl, yes. I had an Anna Carolina that walked in. She was like, she was like, I don't know why you worry. You know, they said Blacks don't get it because we have a different immune system. I said, let me tell you something. Black folks are dying more than white folks. COVID-19. Get, you know, vaccine. Play game, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Get vaccine. Yeah. So, so, ba- so based on what we know right now, today, for people who are concerned about infertility or people who, you know, are, are trying to get pregnant, you still recommend getting the vaccine, preferably Pfizer or Moderna, over not getting it for the potential risk of infertility. You still think it's safer to get the vaccine? Yeah, I think okay. so. Mm-hmm. I, think so I agree. COVID, if you get COVID, and what if you don't live? Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. I mean, I've lost two family members to COVID-19. And um, unfortunately, I've seen in the hospital, I've seen patients who succumb to the virus and it's horrible because you want to breathe for them because it's just like, it's like a cough that just does not stop and they can never catch their breath. It's just horrible. If you enjoyed this Q&A session, you are in luck because this segment has been broken into two parts. Part two will be aired June 14th. If you are enjoying The Eavesdrop, please support the podcast by following it on IG at the Real Eavesdrop underscore podcast. You may also tell a sister, a friend, a coworker. I mean, tell everybody you know. Tell everyone you know about the eavesdrop. Don't keep all this good information to yourself now. (laughs) Also, please rate the show. This is a wonderful way for other women to find the show and take part as well. Well, that is all for now. Until the next episode, be well, be whole, and be blessed. Bye. Bye.